0: It's Wednesday, August the 10th, 2022, and welcome back to Matters of Policy and Politics, the Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the globe. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm at the Hoover uh, Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism. Well, I'm the only fellow with that title. I'm not the only fellow in podcasting these days. If you don't believe me, go to our website, which is hoover.org. Click on the tab at the top of the page. It says commentary, then go over to where it says multimedia, and you'll find our podcast. And there they all are for your perusal and your listening enjoyment. You can subscribe to them on iTunes. You can also sign up for a monthly pod blast, as we call it, which delivers the best for our podcast, your inbox once every month. My guests today, plural, are Donnie Hazeltine and David Winnick, both members of the inaugural class of Hoover's Veteran Fellows Program. Donnie Hazeltine served in the United States Marine Corps for over two decades. He's currently the Chief Security Officer at Zen & Partners, a San Francisco-based private equity firm specializing in the software industry. Dave Winnick, likewise, a Marine Corps vet serving in the Corps for the past 25 years in active duty and reserve capacities. He's a fire chief for the moraga Rinda Fire Protection District in California. Gentlemen, thanks for coming on the podcast today, but more importantly, thank you for your service.
1: Thank you, Bill. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, thanks. So, great to be here.
0: Great. Well, it's great to have you. Let's talk a bit about the Hoover Veterans Fellows Program. This is the first class. Uh, I have the great honor of being on the selection committee. Uh, we uh, spent about three hours on Zoom yesterday going through our uh, candidates and coming up the list of 10 fellows to be introduced very soon. Uh, this is very simple. You guys come to Hoover. You offer us a capstone project. You work on it for the next year. You give us a deliverable. What was it about this program that drew your interest?
2: Bill, I'll, I'll jump in there. You know, as I as I left the Marine Corps and shifted in the private sector, uh, there were a lot of uh, you know a lot of great positives of that, and and in, definitely enjoyed and had a successful transition. But there's still a drive for for public service. And uh, when the Hoover Fellow program came up, being in San Francisco and being connected to, to some of the uh, uh, individuals at Hoover and Stanford as well already, um, I was really excited uh, because it was a way to um, engage the resources that Hoover brings to the table. Uh, again, some pretty concrete and, and challenging uh, public problems. I was able to give do a little public service and, and give back. So that's what excited me about it. And I think that's what kind of got Dave and I engaged. We had to work together as active reserve counterparts in 23rd Marines. And I think it was probably in 2017-ish where Dave comes to my office and said something like, we're, uh, we've are got all this money and technology in Silicon Valley, but we're still fighting fires like we did 100 years ago. Like, what, what can we do different? And I remember starting to think through so the technology I've been introduced to in Silicon Valley through Sanford's Hacking for Defense program, and we just started board gaming different ways that we could kind of change the shift. And then um, when the Hoover Veteran Fellow program came up, uh, we, we chatted again and kind of came at it uh, as a team and said, okay, what's the current state of the fire problem? And what are some ways we can move the ball left to what can you do before the fire starts instead of just identifying and suppressing it?
0: Mm-hmm. Dave?
1: As Donnie alluded to, um, the Veteran Fellows Program has been just flat out excellent, giving us access to the, the resources of Hoover and Stanford, giving us uh, the sort of the mandate to, to be working on, on this thing. When you show up to a conversation with uh, decision makers and key stakeholders, uh, there's often a question of who are you and why are you in this space? And having the, uh, the mandate of the Hoover Veteran Fellows Program has made it very easy to explain who we are and why we're in this space. And then being able to leverage those resources in the form of other fellows and academics on campus and um, the research assistants who come who are associated with the program. uh, And then all the event staff and the rest of the staff at at Hoover have just been uh, fantastic and have really accelerated uh, what, as Donnie mentioned, for us has been a multi-year interest. And in my case, a multi-year career has been able to accelerate that by giving us the platform that, that we wouldn't have had in the absence of this program.
0: And your thoughts on your fellow fellows. Tell me what you learned about uh, your fellow classmates.
1: Oh, man, I'll take that. <laughs> what I learned about my fellow classmates is there's some remarkable human beings floating around uh, out there and particularly amongst the veteran community. I mean, these are all um, top shelf, driven, hardworking, successful people with academic credentials and a, and a call to service that manifests itself not only during their time in uniform, but now when you look at the projects that they're working on, there's a, there's a social good to all of them. Um, which i think is, is helpful to view it through the the lens and, and some of the the rigor and discipline that that typically um, veterans bring to the fight and in, in this case I think it's very helpful to move some of these ideas forward uh, and help advance some areas where, where things have been gummed up uh, amidst the, the gears of bureaucracy for years
0: mm-hmm. Donnie?
2: yeah no I agree with Dave I think you know when you walk in a program uh, like this at a place like Hoover uh, the first the first uh, Thing that jumps in your mind is like man i must have been number 10 out of 10 on this group uh you know there's uh it just just straight at all stars and i think that beyond all that uh you know like dave said impressive careers in the military impressive careers out of the military uh but just just good human beings i think is the thing that, that stands out and um we've had a lot of great conversations what's interesting is the problems are are very very diverse Uh, So they're attacking a wide range of things. There's not a lot of overlap, but we found a lot of ways where we've been able to support each other. And uh, that's been really exciting to have uh, one of the fellows come and say, having a problem with this and having us brainstorm together and and share resources and networking to kind of try to move the ball forward. But a great group. And it's great to be at Hoover and be able to, like Dave said, leverage those resources uh, towards problem sets. Because sometimes in these problems, you feel like you're the one person standing alone trying to figure this out. Uh, being able to reach back and call upon additional support is, is is great. Just like in the Marine Corps, you don't want to be the lone, lone infantryman out there. You want to be able to have all the combined armed support uh, behind you.
0: It's funny you mentioned feeling like you're 10 out of 10. The thing about the Hoover Institution is it's a great institution. and allows you to think. Uh, on the other hand, uh, it also is a breeding ground for insecurity. If you <laughs> wonder about your own uh, credentials, years and years ago when I first joined, I was asked to give a talk about California, and I spoke before a Hoover crowd, and in the front row looking up at me were my former boss, Pete Wilson, the governor of California, and a very smart politician. Uh, sitting next to him was George Schultz. Uh, his resume, needless to say, but the first thing I tell you was United States Marine Corps. And next to George Schultz was Edward Teller, the creator of the, of the H-bomb. And I looked down I thought, I'm in trouble.
1: It's funny you say that, Bill. Our very first day on campus, we were walking down the hallway and we bumped into Secretary Rice, who was incredibly gracious and, yeah. and knew what we were there to do and knew about our program specifically, which definitely rocked me back on my heels. And then, about twenty feet farther down, we ran into General McMaster, who once again yep. was incredibly gracious and knew all about our project and our and what we were doing at the program. And I looked at Donnie. I said, "We might want to put our hand up and say, you know, give him a chance to have a go back, because my goodness, we are <laughs> we are batting above our weight here."
0: Well, you know, they're all gracious people, and I don't know if you had time to spend with Jim Mattis or not, but mm-hmm. uh, certainly. Yeah, four stars, uh, Marine Corps. He's he's just a wonderful, welcoming man too. Uh, final question about the Veterans Fell Program, uh, and then we'll get to the Capstone Project. Um, your thoughts on who the ideal candidates for this are, and and uh, if you're a veteran out there and this interests you, what qualifications would you recommend for that veteran in terms of applying? What what do they need to to bring to the table?
2: I think the the first thing I would say is, uh, you know, all veterans are going to come in with a public service mindset and experience in the military. And I think that, right. you know, when, when you look at the candidates, that's that's almost assumed, right? Uh, the real key thing that really sets you apart is, do you have a passion to make a change somewhere in society and to make people's lives better? And I think the way to look at it is like, um, why is this problem critical? Uh, why is why am I the person to work on it right now? And then why is now the right time? And right. I think those are the three questions. Questions that, that, that really come through when you're trying to evaluate programs like this and applying to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would just say for anyone who has
1: the opportunity, absolutely should apply. It's been, uh, I've gotten a great deal from it and give it my highest recommendation. And then we'll just offer just a little bit of advice from what we've learned. Um, you just simply don't have the time to boil the ocean and, yeah. and taking um, your project and your proposal focus and necking it down to something with some specificity. Uh, within which there's an opportunity for success uh, because you're you're just knocking on doors and starting cold on a large problem. Uh, There's simply not going to be enough time to convert that. These are are thorny problems. These are multi-year solutions. And so carving out a specific subset of a larger problem that is a logical stepping stone or building block to an eventual larger solution uh, is much more appropriate for, for what's reasonable to attempt to accomplish during the time available.
0: Yeah, and your guy's capstone is a great example of this. I've been studying California and its married problems for the better part of three decades now, and your project opened my eyes to something I really hadn't thought about with regard to wildfires. Let me read to you um, what you put down for challenge addressed. Quote, In any given year, the average Californian is unlikely to experience wildfire loss, but currently, or in the very near future, they are likely to experience disruption of the insurance market caused by the increasing number and intensity of wildfires. And then your capstone goal, quote, the development and circulation of a comprehensive solution to wildfire caused disruptions of the insurance marketplace in the form of three distinct but interconnected proposals for government, the insurance industry, and homeowners. Uh, This is brilliant, guys. Uh, We think about fires in California, and the first thing we think about is, getting the heck out of the way of them. Uh, we think about the inconvenience. I'm talking to you from Palo Alto, where in 2020, the wind shifted and just a horrible layer of smoke descended upon this part of the of the Bay Area, which usually doesn't get hit by smoke. And it was miserable. Actually, I actually had to leave town. It was so bad. But you're talking about something uh, which we haven't talked about much in California, and that is the insurance gap. So uh, explain a little bit about the insurance disparity in California.
1: It, absolutely. And so... Uh... We, we have this challenge where in a regulated market that is regulated with the, the goal of providing fair and, and unfettered access and give people um, uh, allow unsophisticated consumers not to be preyed upon by sophisticated providers and all good intent. And certainly there's a place for regulation here, but but regulation has had the effect of disconnecting um, actions the risk that those actions create, and the pricing of those risks in a way that has removed the the powerful incentive and the powerful signaling that the market can send through pricing to suggest to people when and where uh, they should take actions that reduce the probability of wildfire loss, not only for their parcel, but for their community as a whole. And and that has really come to a head over the last several years. As an example, um, the wildfire losses experienced in 2017 and 2018 wiped out two times the combined premium profit generated over the previous 26 years since the 1991 Oakland Hills firestorm. Right, And so the, the market for years and years was not pricing wildfire risk as part of the equation because wildfire risk and wildfire loss was not occurring at, at a level where it impacted um, the, the pricing and the premium structure. That has fundamentally changed because 2017 was was a little bit of an anomaly, and we've had wildfires before, obviously, but that the, the the size and scope of the loss was significantly exceeded the previous several years. Well, then 2018, we double it down, uh, again, with not only the, the campfire devastating the community of paradise, but significant wildfire loss and a number of other fires that year. And then in 2020 and 2021, we do it again, at which point, I, at least for me, I've hit the I believe button that these are not isolated instances, and this is this is not an anomaly. And and I push back a little bit when people say, this is the new normal, this is not, this is the old normal, it's just back. Because prior to 1910, when we began the industrialized suppression and exclusion of wildfire from the landscape, prior to that time, fire is a natural and recurrent part of the environment and we need to adjust to match that. And I think what we are seeing coming out of insurance is just the early bellwether of future problems to come as a result of uncontrolled wildfire spread, if if we don't take dramatic action um, to change the conditions on the ground that support these wildfires.
0: Right, Donnie, we say fire season in California, we think of that as a fall occurrence, like you would the Santa Ana winds, but do we need to redefine fire season? It seems to be we're getting fires year round.
2: Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's definitely, it's a fire year now, Bill. And I think if you look at what Cal Fire said, they have actually come out and said that, like it is a fire year. I and mean, we just, we had one I mean, heck, in my neighborhood, I just had one a couple months ago that actually evacuated people out of would be, right? I mean, it's it's popping up all over. As Dave said, it's important to realize fires are a natural recurring part of the environment. If you look at even uh, historical record pre you know, human beings settling in the San Francisco area, I mean, usually California had about four million acres or so burning and every year. And and, and we've kept it down about two million, but like Dave said, like it's gonna keep coming back up. But the real challenge is <clears throat> is once it burns, it's going to keep coming back. Like three to five years, it it rotates back. And we've had those, I'd say, the eight worst fires in recorded history and 12 of the top 20 occurred between 2017 and 2022. So, you know, like Dave said, if you look collectively at the insurance market, you have the 1991 Oakland Hills fire, then you have years of kind of recovering. And then you have these 2017 and 18 ones that disrupted it again, causing, though, a $10 million aggregate loss. So I think when you step back and look at that, The insurance companies are not necessarily, you know, like Dave said. It's not this case of sophisticated uh, provider, unsophisticated consumer. It's it's a case of where it's just a business decision, right? It's we still have to make some degree of a profit. We can't like give this away for free. And when they started thinking of how they price risk, the first thing they could do is say, "Did fire touch your zip code?" But that's a very that's a very broad brush. It's like a sledgehammer instead of a scalpel. Uh, And then you see the California government come back and say, "Well." We can't have that. That's going to cause a rash of non-renewals that's going to really hurt homeowners. So they responded by saying like, OK, we're going to put a one year moratorium if fire touches your zip code. So it's it's the industry and the government fighting with blunt instruments, which really should be precision risk based decisions down to the parcel and community level. And I think that's what really got Dave and I thinking is, you know, when you step back, it's like you said, it's very easy to look at the fire problem is something just large and vast. And Even if people have experienced it, the smoke or the fire, like it's an abstract problem. So when you think pre-fire, what can we do? And the thought is like insurance is an annual problem. If we can fix the pricing indicators, we can actually set a series of very clear economic um, incentives that will get homeowners to take the right steps uh, to reduce the impact of fire. Uh, we know how to prevent the fires, but the key thing is, is can you get people to adopt mitigations that matter in the terms of defensible space and home hardening? Because if you have communities that do that, the fire will still come, but it will not burn down that community. So you have to guess now, we can, we can, if we can price it right, we can actually give better insurance than the fair plan, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little later on. Yes. We can give insurance to people, we can protect their homes. And at the end of the day, like their homes don't burn down, right?
0: Yeah, interesting. So, some stats from CAL FIRE here. Uh, so far in 2022, the 5,200 wildfires across California affecting approximately 180,000 acres but only 503 structures damaged or destroyed. If you compare or contrast that to what happens when there's a terrible earthquake in a large urban area, 1994, the Northridge earthquake in Los Angeles, 25,000 homes destroyed or damaged. Uh, The Northridge earthquake in 1989, I don't know if you guys were around for that or not, 18,000 houses damaged, over 960 destroyed. So uh, fire cuts a big swath across California, but in terms of homes actually destroyed by it, not so bad. But here's the problem guys, from 2016 to 2019, I did a little research on this insurers in California accumulated losses of $37 billion due to California wildfires at the same time in premiums paid by homeowners, $32 billion. So there's a $5 billion gap. Uh, I've never run a business, but my uh, sense here is that if I'm running a business where I am paying more out in premiums and money I'm getting, my business can't operate.
2: Right. And and Bill, when when they do that, the the, the challenge is, is you drive people to no option we got and we if I talked to a Hoover fellow not too long ago who said my neighbor just bought a house in Woodside and right. now he cannot get home insurance for it and I think the, the the one analogy the earthquakes a great analogy I think another analogy to look at is where I grew up in Louisiana with with flood insurance right mm-hmm. um, flood insurance just became eventually so costly that there was an alternative government plan that came out um, and that's what drove everyone to it when everyone could actually get that plan it's not great insurance but it can still it's still insurance it didn't take away the disincentive to build and develop in these areas, right? And government does some things very, very well, like fire suppression, right? Cal Fire is amazing at their job, but running an insurance program is probably not the best thing. And, and when you look at like fair plan, policies went up, I think adoption I think in 2020, 20%. And it's continuing to climb because the insurance company that only has the option. If I can't raise premiums, I can't accurately adjust the risk. The only thing I can do is non-renew or step out and leave the market. And if that's the case, now we're leaving homeowners hanging. So the question is, how do we get homeowners to be a part of the solution and bring the insurance companies back in to basically change that, uh, that market, the insurance market, to something that's not volatile and failing, to something that's a healthy market? And healthy market conditions can produce positive outcomes.
1: And I think, Bill, just back to your earthquake analogy, in sharp contrast to the losses incurred during uh, Northridge or uh, Loma Prieta, Look at Japan, which is incredibly seismically active, it has adopted and enforces stringent building codes. And when things shake there, they don't experience loss and so they don't experience damage because the environment is built to, to handle those loads and that force. And that's really what we're, we're talking about with wildfire. And uh, how, do we, how do we build the environment? And in this case, it, it, in some ways, it's a much easier problem to solve because retrofitting or rebuilding a structure to survive a major earthquake is a massive engineering undertaking. Creating defensible space, the, the reduction of uh, vegetation around a home, uh, that's simply gardening or landscaping, depending on how you look at it. Mm-hmm. And retrofitting a home, there are a number of very high impact, low cost measures like replacing vents with a finer um, size mesh, et cetera, that can dramatically reduce a community's exposure. So we're not going to combat fire. Fire is a natural and recurring part, right? This isn't a fight right. to be won. On the other hand, uh, we can create fire-resilient communities so when those fires burn, they don't cause damage, and we can reduce the intensity and the spread rates and the susceptibility of our structures and the values at risk through these low-cost, high-impact, easily uh, implemented and well-understood measures.
0: Let's talk a bit about what the state of California does, and then I want to get into your op-ed in the San Francisco Chronicle and your proposals uh, for how you think we should address this. Um this falls under the dominion of the California State Insurance Commissioner. This was an office created about 30 years ago. Uh, the Department of Insurance was under the province of the governor. They decided that was too much power for the governor, so they created this office. Uh, he or she is an elected official. He or she is a Democrat, so you have problems right away in terms of um, uh, having an ambitious um, office holder there. Uh, it means, for one thing, that a uh, insurance commissioner is going to be very loath to approve uh, rate increases in California. Why? Because it makes for terrible headlines if I'm running for a higher office. I don't want to be the person who jacked up your insurance rates. So that's one problem. But you go onto the website of uh, Ricardo Lara. He is the current California insurance commissioner. He's up for re-election this fall. Uh, you'll find that he has done, among other things, he's launched a, problem called, a program called Safer from Wildfires. Um, this is an insurance framework. Um, he talks a lot about mitigation actions like clearing vegetation, uh, Uh, refitting houses with fire-resistant roofs and so forth. Uh, He's proposed regulations to incorporate safer from wildfires into insurance pricing, uh, as he calls it, wildfire risk scores, which lead to lower rates. This looks good on paper. Is there anything wrong with this?
1: I I think it's a great first step. And and one of the things that we are driving at, with um, both with the op-ed and with our work uh, as Hoover Veteran Fellows, is to create alignment between the insurance industry, the insurance commissioner, the fire service, and and the residents who ultimately benefit. Because all four of those groups, when when you really break down to first principles, all four of those groups have the same desired outcome. That is a reduction in wildfire loss and Mm -hmm. and all the disruption and, and the suffering that comes with that. A stable insurance market that follows logically from a reduction in wildfire loss and a thriving, competitive market where price is accurately or risk is accurately priced, and and so I think the um, the way to look at exactly to your point is no one wants to announce that they cause rates to be increases and in, increased in prices to go up. Yet at the same time, nobody wants to to have to answer for why residents or communities that have done the right thing are being penalized because we don't have the mechanism. That allows the good work that has been done by some forward thinking and progressive communities for right. that work to be um, ingested, priced, recognized, and then maintained over time. So that your pricing goes up and down in a, in a thriving, functioning market where there is competition. And, and some of the, the elements of the Safer from Wildfire framework, as well as IBHS's related uh, wildfire prepared home um, program. Is it? It lays out a series of steps that are that are now. Uh, once we write them down and once they are quantified, then we can all achieve alignment. We can move away from the current balkanization, where different agencies are enforcing to different standards. Different insurance carriers are using proprietary systems to to evaluate and price risk. When we create alignment through these programs, where we all can agree the mitigations that matter. What are the low cost, high impact, science based measures that will reduce the mm-hmm. the probability of a a home or community experiencing wildfire loss when we can achieve alignment there and we can create frameworks that then residents and communities can follow we reduce the confusion that currently characterizes people's understanding of of what they should do and that confusion is reinforcing the status quo bias where people sort of throw their hands in the air and say oh my gosh this is it's wildfire it's a force of nature it's too much there's nothing i can do and as we move forward with alignment between those four groups of stakeholders we now start setting a pathway where we can mobilize the millions of homes, in the, uh, sorry, the millions of residents who live in the, in the wildland urban interface to do the work on their parcel and create resiliency. And I, and I think that's, that is the key, the, the underlying thing we are driving at is rather than viewing this as this giant unsolvable problem of there's 4 million homes in the WUI and what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. Let's turn that one around and let's say, this is amazing. There are 4 million residents of the WUI, and if each one of them does their small little piece of this, we now create resiliency at scale at the speed of relevance. And I just don't see how that, how that can be accomplished in a centralized manner. And so, therefore, I see the, the new proposals coming out of CDI and the potential for alignment between CDI and um, IBHS and the fire service and the residents who, who act- ultimately have to take action. Uh, I see that as a tremendous good news story that has the potential to to really um, move the needle on this thing and quickly.
0: Donnie, do you wanna explain what WUI is and uh, how WUI works sure. in California, because um, it seems to me what you're gonna talk about is people building homes in areas that are prone to natural disasters, in this case, wildfires. Uh, but this California, part of California's DNA is its residents love to mix it up with nature. And so they love to they love to build on the coast where you have soil erosion. They like to be out in the wilderness where you could have a fire. But tell us a bit about WUI.
2: Yeah, sure. The WUI is the wildland urban interface. And simply put, you know when you think about wildfires, out in the open open forest, when those happen, there are certain suppression efforts, but a lot of times if there's not a risk to, to individual uh, people or, or property, a lot right. of times you kind of just watch and try to manage it a little more carefully at, at a distance. Um, but when it's right up against homes where a fire starts and a wind change occurs and now suddenly you're threatening hundreds of people, you're threatening all kinds of um, homes, now it becomes a much bigger issue. So. When you think about that, prevention is is always much more effective than suppression in those areas. Right. So while as you point out, Californians and people are going to continue to build in those areas and in building in those areas, uh, we just need to think about what can you do to prevent it? And this is where it talks about what Dave said about prevention and, and versus suppression. When you take the right steps of home hardening and defensible space, you set up conditions where even if you're in that WUI, um, those passive measures in place when a fire approaches will will prevent the fire from basically spreading and carrying through those neighborhoods.
0: Right. So what we're getting at here is that California needs um, less of a reactive strategy, it sounds like. Um, it's like having a good football team that has a killer defense, but its offense doesn't necessarily work very well. And maybe you can back into winning football games by just keeping the team from scoring, but you need to score points yourself. Uh, and this is tricky in politics. A few weeks ago, for example, the um, you know, state got great big headlines because it was announced that we're getting seven C-130s from the Pentagon. And you know, chief, that might come in handy when you're putting out a fire, but that is totally reactive. That's after the fact. That doesn't stop. Stop that doesn't prevent the fire in the first place.
1: Yeah, I would point students to history to the simple fact that air power doesn't win wars. And, and that's the same, the strategic air survey was crystal clear about that in the second world war. Um, and seven more C-130s will be useful at specific times and places. Uh, but as Donnie mentioned, creating passive measures in advance of a fire, it, those will reliably be in place. There are no external factors that require coordination. There are no competition for resources during something like the lightning caused fire complexes that we saw break out simultaneously in August of 2020. No number uh, of C-130s or firefighters or fire engines uh, will be adequate on those days that uh, weather, fuel, topography come into alignment and we see uh, explosive, unstoppable fire spread. Uh, To that point, um, when the campfire burned in 2018, you could have blackened the sky with aircraft and it would not have been enough to to stop that fire spread. On the other hand, uh, fire is quite simply a product of fuel, weather, and topography. And weather is, is bad and getting worse. Topography is unchangeable and fuel can be modified. And when fuel is removed or modified, so it is not in a manner that supports rapid fire spread, fire simply, it just can't burn without a medium to carry fire across the space. It is unable to traverse that area. And so if we, if we adopt these proven measures that disrupt the continuity of the fuel beds in proximity to the homes while hardening the homes through replacing vents and other things so the homes don't become fuels themselves, uh, we can rapidly and reliably reduce the the risk of fire spread through our communities.
0: Okay, Donnie, let's shift to your here that you and... Um... The chief co-wrote in the SF Chronicle on July 30th and this passage, quote, to stave off catastrophic loss, we need a holistic approach with established standards and that incentives Californians to meet them. Uh, Explain what you mean by the word holistic.
2: Yeah, I think when you step back and look at that entire perspective, right? And and I think when Davis mentioned this, you've got to look at fire in the terms of weather, topography and fuel. And you've got to look at the fire problem in California as a number of stakeholders with government, homeowner communities, and the insurance industry. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't solve any of those pieces with just one element. You know, you can't go in and say, I'm gonna um, go into and solve fire by just working through the Department of Insurance, cd You can't do it by just saying the insurance industry can handle it. So what you want you to do is, is bring all those together and show how they interrelate. So when we started looking at this problem, the reason why you came up with this is we said, all right, what are some areas, if we do an interest map, how do these three areas uh, relate? And you look at homeowners and you can see that, you know what, what do homeowners can, can, uh, are concerned about? They're concerned about liquidity. They're concerned about life safety. They're concerned about intergenerational wealth and that your home is often the largest source of intergenerational wealth you have in California. Can you stabilize the cost of ownership and sustain that market value? Those are the things that homeowners need, but that to, to, to do that, they require insurability. When you look at the insurance industry, they need a way to be able to accurately price risk, accurately price residual risk, and have some degree of regulatory certainty that they can maintain and participate in the market. And the government's got a number of concerns with that as well, right? When you talk about, obviously, the public safety uh, requirement, constituent concerns, tourism, but they also have issues where of just stable revenue. You know, when the campfire burns or when paradise burns down, That revenue goes away for state and local authorities to basically do other positive changes. So when you look at these collectively together, we say, okay, what's the way we can bring them all together? And it's getting, as Dave said, mobilizing the 4 million homeowners in the WUI to take steps on just their individual property to empower them with the right resource to understand home hardening and what they can do to build that defensible space. We work with the insurance companies to come in and help understand how to accurately price risk in that, so they understand we can make a healthy market and participate in. And you use government regulation in the right way to set those conditions. If you build that together, that is a holistic solution where homeowners are incentivized not just to make those initial steps, but continued ongoing maintenance in the out years because the insurance company is holding them accountable for that. but in doing that, you, you set these market forces, which basically incentivize adoption of those mitigations that really matter to slowing or redirecting fire.
0: Uh, David seems to me right now the California model is get insurance if you can, and if you can't get insurance, is the California Fair Plan. Uh, for those not familiar, this makes fire insurance available to homeowners who are considered high risk. Uh, what is what's wrong with fair? Where's where's fair falling down?
1: well i I think it's in the name and it which is not not fair but the second part it is literally called the insurance of last resort i mean that that's that's in the name so it was never intended to be a a, the primary provider it was strictly intended to be a catch-all for folks who for whatever reason isolated instances were unable to to get coverage and i think the danger there and there's an excellent analog with federal flood insurance And federal flood insurance has expanded to the degree that it is essentially the only game in town and federal flood insurance because of political pressure preventing the accurate pricing of risk has encouraged some incredibly risky building in some areas that are unsurprisingly going to flood or be literally underwater in the foreseeable future. Yet we've encouraged many many people to build there and now we are facing an enormous problem of managed retreat or whatever the appropriate solution is going to be in areas that never would have been built were it not for federal flood insurance providing an artificial sense of security i i'm concerned that the fair plan has the same potential that if we give folks an artificial sense of oh it's okay you can get coverage through this alternate plan We're going to push people into a program that was never designed to be the primary carrier, is not built to be expanded to enormous swaths of the population, and lacks the competitive market forces and the free market's ability to accurately price risk that makes a a functioning insurance marketplace thrive.
0: And you mentioned floods. So um, I assume you're talking, for example, the Mississippi River, which is prone to floods. Uh, Louisiana came up with this conversation. The Gulf Coast has been walloped by hurricanes. Uh, you look up and down the two coasts of Florida and they're building like crazy. I have family in South Carolina. People love to build next to the water there. These are hurricane belts. Are we seeing similar insurance challenges there or this, or is the wildfire situation California unique?
1: No, I think there's there's an absolute analog to a Hurricane in a positive way. So prior to Andrew in 1992, um, Hurricane uh, pricing of risk was poorly understood, and, and and these were treated as sort of one-off events. Following uh, Andrew in 92, the insurance industry and regulators, uh, in with IBHS and NIST doing the important research to back it up came to agreement about the mitigations that matter that prevent roofs from being ripped off of homes and windows being blown in and and all of these other things that can be incorporated into the built environment to reduce hurricane loss. Uh, And those have been implemented. And if you look at Florida as an example, has incredibly progressive building codes around um, hurricane resistant features. And IBHS's Fortified Homes Program lays out exactly what needs to be done. And when homeowners do those things, they see uh, either they become insurable or they see a reduction in, in premium. And it has effectively incentivized adoption of these proven measures that reduce loss. That's the analog that I, I think we need to apply here. And, and the part that, as you mentioned in the beginning, perhaps opened your eyes to this, is that wildfire at its component parts is as protectable um, against uh, as apparel as hurricanes are. In fact, in some ways it, it's somewhat easier uh, because it doesn't come with 180 mile an hour winds and it, it doesn't come with these extreme combinations. And if we modify fuels and we build or retrofit our homes in um, reasonable and approachable ways, we can dramatically change uh, the wildfire profile. Just as an example, I mean, this is just a, an observation from the field. Um, last year on the Caldor fire, a terrible fire, one of the only two fires in history to jump the Pacific crest. When that fire burned into areas that had been grazed or selectively logged, it just stopped, right? So relatively low cost, high impact, approachable measures, as simple as running cows across a grass field or or having thinned out some of the overgrowth of of trees and and ground material, the fire just came to a complete dead stop because there was no fuel to carry it. There is no analog to that with hurricanes or hurricanes are not as easy um, to mitigate against that peril.
0: right? Right. Okay, Donnie, we're going to play a little fun game now called elevator pitch. And if I gave you time with the insurance commissioner of California, the governor of California, somebody in a position who could actually implement your ideas, give me your elevator pitches for the three things you'd like to do.
2: I would say there's a, there's really just one key thing we need to do, and it's bring all stakeholders together to take what we know is proven fire science about what mitigations matter in defensible home space, and defensible space and home hardening. And let's Take that fire science that we know works and let's find a way to ensure that homeowners can adopt it and insurance companies can recognize those mitigations to make a healthy market.
0: Okay, define stakeholders for me.
2: Uh, stakeholders, homeowner communities, government, mm-hmm. and the insurance industry, are the, I'd say, are the three big ones.
1: Mm-hmm. I would add a fourth stakeholder, uh, which would be fire scientists. That if all this is underlaid by, by good, well-researched, unimpeachable fire science, uh, we can move out uh, of some of the, the distrust and uncertainty that the various stakeholders have to come together. And we can use fire science as the glue to bind them towards their common objective of reducing wildfire loss in our communities.
0: Mm, very good. So why is this meeting happening? Have you Have you studied state government at all? Have you figured out what the dysfunctionality of Sacramento is?
1: I, I, would, I would say with caution that I'm not endorsing the statement that Sacramento is dysfunctional. Uh, that said, <laughs> Uh, we, we have continued to work with the stakeholders. We're, we're meeting with CDI. We're meeting with IBHS. We're meeting with the actuaries and the catastrophic risk modelers uh, with Cal Fire um, and, and the various stakeholders. Um, so we are we are holding those meetings uh, and we are cautiously optimistic that those will bear fruit. Um, that said, uh, this is a big ship. It takes a long time to turn. And what we're trying very, very hard uh, to stay within the lane of um, of being innovators, not disruptors, of walking people to eventual solutions that can be implemented. Uh, And we will be thrilled um, to be standing in the back cheering as someone else stands up to say, look what we did uh, and takes credit for moving it forward.
0: You're trying to be good-natured, well-meaning academics. Uh, Donnie, tell us what progress looks like on this front. Dave suggested progress is possible, but it's going to take time. So what should we look for in terms of incremental change?
2: I I think the first thing is is working with the fire scientists, uh, the insurance commissioner, and the insurance agencies to say, this is clearly what you should do with your home on defensible space home market. Mm-hmm. If that's clear, and it's not a case of, of mixed standards and confusions, which, which you see sometimes out there is well-meaning organizations and individuals will put things like that out, uh, but it can cause some cognitive dissonance with the homeowners who's trying to judge what they should do. Should I take this mitigation? How much is it going to cost? Should I do this thing? How much is that going to cost? Or maybe I can just Hope that fire will continue to be an abstract problem for me. So can we just get those mitigations that matter clearly understood, clearly promulgated? And then once those are out there, help empower homeowners to take those steps, both incentivize and empower. So I think that you know what Dave said earlier is spot on. We can look at Sacramento. We can look at government to, to try to solve this problem. That's probably not the right solution. How do we empower the individual owners with the information they need and incentivize them to take those steps? And I think with that point that they made, like progress could actually come fairly quickly if we, we got that that market conditions right. Because as Dave said, if, if 4 million home, those 4 million homeowners walk out tomorrow and say, I'm going to trim down, remove some of these bushes that are close to the house, make sure zero to five feet, there's nothing flammable, uh, patch these vents with with some uh, mesh. If they, if they just take these steps that fire scientists can explain and, and, and show work, um, that would radically change next year's season. radically. It's just to get everyone to understand that empowerment and incentivization, we need those stakeholders to come together in, in, in a common focus.
0: In the meantime, Dave, you have uh, insurance companies out there, the aforementioned $5 billion gap between payments and premiums. What's your message to them? Hang in there? We're going to try to change things? Or in other words, I'm concerned about this. Eventually, insurance companies will make a business decision. That business decision is going to be getting out of the insurance market of California.
1: I agree and I, I, I think we have a little bit of time there just because California is such a big market and, and is right. it figures so heavily. It's worth noting, however, that that's not a sure thing and, and that not will that will not continue in perpetuity with year over-year losses. It's also worth noting that for many years, California was seen as a place where carriers could hedge their risk, their hurricane risk from the mid-Atlantic and Florida. Uh, and as, as we become a place that requires a hedge from somewhere else, that will continue to put pressure. On the market, my message to the insurance companies is is not just wait wait for this, but is to actively work with us. Because as the insurance industry's assessment of risk is balkanized, and as some of that message works its way down to the the homeowner and the resident level, uh, that creates confusion, as Donnie referenced. And confusion, uh, if we're talking about doing something different, there there's a resistance to change. And and one of my my standard jokes here in the fire district is as I stand with a resident looking out over an overgrown yard or overside roadside, uh, many of them have said, um, I've lived here since 1970 and I've never had to do that before. And as we look at the lot, I say, (laughs) I believe you on both counts. And it's something new. And if we all are speaking with the same voice, once we achieve that alignment around the mitigations that mattered, if the insurance company or carrier, if the fire district, if the insurance commissioner, if we're all speaking with the same voice towards this desired outcome, it will be much easier to rapidly move towards adoption, to align incentive programs, both market-based and then assistance to residents who are in need of it. The alignment will be much easier to achieve if we were all speaking with the same voice and we've all been able to slap the table in alignment around those core mitigations, that science-based mitigations that matter.
0: Yeah. And Donnie, we're getting into a larger conversation, which is the affordable existence of California. If you uh, drive out of San Francisco and go north on the 101 toward uh, toward Santa Rosa, years Mm -hmm. ago, it would have been a pretty empty drive as you head toward one country. But now you notice as you drive up there, it's just kind of wall-to-wall development. And this came back to bite us real badly a couple of years ago with fires. And Mm -hmm. the first thing I noticed were just all these homes just really close to the wilderness, just in places they shouldn't have been built. So part of this conversation, but why do those houses exist? Because people want to live in the Bay Area, but they can't afford a home near San Francisco. So they move out to Santa Rosa to find an affordable house. So there's just a lot of moving parts, it seems, to this conversation.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's kind of a self-perpetuating problem as well, right? It is, you know, part of the aspect, and I'm I'm certainly not going to get into solving the home home cost crisis in the San Francisco area. But, you know, one thing is if you can't get insurance for your home, the only thing you can do is effectively like self-finance and, and pay cash because a mortgage company is not going to basically back you if right. they can't get insurance. So that now causes other impacts to, to that homeowner's industry. If, we're not, probably not going to stop people from building the way it's just like you're not going to stop people from building on the coast of Florida. So what can you do to set the conditions that if you are in that, that case and a fire starts, you remove the fuel that's around your home on your property so the fire can't carry through that? So I think those are the, those are the key steps is can we take codes and insurance to one either encourage people to stop building homes that we know will burn I mean that's the real thing like fire will burn there will be fires but we can actually set a range of mitigations and code enforcement that prevents homes from burning uh, you know one example is ember resistance one of the ways fires actually spread when you're in that is not necessarily the fire runs up to your home and burns through it Embers, it's, embers get flung right. and they get caught up in your attic or something like that. And if you look at an in infrared picture of a fire, you see the fire blow through a neighborhood and everything's cold behind it. And then hours later, you see little hot spots of those homes that, ha- that caught fire initially with a small ember and gradually burned to the ground. If you do, took the actual uh, home hardening steps, that would actually not happen. So fire might blow through your neighborhood, but it's going to blow through your neighborhood and still preserve the property. And that's the key thing. Can you limit those losses in a way that it's survivable, both for the homeowners, but also for the insurance market?
1: Okay. Chief? Yeah, we have those standards. Um, R7A has been around and and 337 sections of the building code and the residential building code. Those have been in in place since 2008. Um, We just don't always require people to build to them. So to Donnie's point, it's not to stop building homes. It's to stop building homes we know will burn. And start building homes that are adapted to to this new normal, this old normal, depending on how you look at it. Uh, we have that. It's just a matter of of the political will and the acceptance of this reality to require people to build them, which uh, generally um, triggers about a ten to fifteen percent increase in construction costs. Uh, while and while that is real money, and while the cost of construction is is very high, uh, that's a that's a tiny little investment to hedge against the future requirement to rebuild, to move, to suffer that loss. And when we can align these incentives so that uh, there there is a um, a, either reduction or a a maintenance of um, lower insurance premium over years, we encourage adoption. And we've done this before. We require residential sprinklers. Um, That's a relatively recent phenomenon, last 20, 30 years. If you have residential sprinklers, your homeowner's insurance goes down because one of the major perils of a catastrophic loss, uh, an interior residential fire distinct from a, a wildfire has essentially been eliminated because sprinkler buildings don't burn. So we, we can take these same examples and we can apply them. It's just a, it, for some reason, this one is being treated differently. I think because we've all sort of had our head in the sand hoping that these these wildfire losses were anomalies. And, and I, at least for me, I, I'm past that point. I think it's time we all accept this is here to stay. And the sooner we start adopting uh, these known measures to create resilient communities that are adapted to fire, the sooner we will start the process of moving out of the current crisis.
0: Okay, my fellow fellows, you've completed your mission at the Hoover Institution. You are graduating in our first class. What would you like to do next? Do you wanna keep working at the Hoover Institution? And are you, are you already thinking about the next thing?
2: Yeah, I think the, the, the answer to the first one is yes, we would love to continue working with the Hoover Institution. Uh, it's been a wonderful experience, uh, just the, the relationships, networking, and the support. And I think even as we finish this, uh, as we continue to work on this problem, uh, I expect we'll still have some great conversations uh, with, with fellows like you, Bill, and finding ways that we can either leverage resources or work together uh, to, to make this a better a better world for Californians to live in.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Dave? Yeah, absolutely, like Donnie said, uh, recognizing that we were nine and ten out of ten. Uh, we'll argue later about who was number nine and who was number ten. But recognizing that we were at the bottom of the stack, it's just been an amazing experience, uh, and we certainly we're eager to continue to be able to leverage the resources of Hoover and Stanford to, to try to advance this because it, it's clearly this is not this isn't going to be done uh, as we complete right. our, our time with Hoover, and um, we're we're invested in the outcome uh, as I think we all should be.
0: Donnie Team, Chief Dave Whitaker, I want to thank you for a conversation today, and I'd also like to again thank you for your service to the nation, your time spent with the Hoover Institution, your commitment to making this a better world. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the globe. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Tell your friends about us. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's spelled at Hoover I-N-S-T. If you've served in the armed forces and want to learn more about Hoover's Veteran Fellows Program, by all means, go to Hoover.org and check out our page detailing these great men and women. You can read their bios, the first class, 2021-22, the cohort as we call them. You can also learn about their work, the capstone projects we've been referring to. We just closed the books on the second class, which we'll be announcing very soon. So think about this as a summer of 2023 endeavor if you're interested and apply, and please just check it out. I think you'll find it's a great use of your time if you're interested. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment in matters of policy and politics, catching up with Bjorn Lomborg on Washington's latest action to save the planet. Yes, the Inflation Reduction Act, it has more to do with green energy than it does actually lowering prices.